In other words, this new soup or this new stew of science is coming together in a de-siloed way that creates possibilities and potentials that are in many ways mind-blowing. But the question then becomes, what can we learn from the patterns of biosecurity and biohazard preparedness response and mitigation that would be useful to then apply to future elements? Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Combat Capabilities Development Command's Armament Center within the Army Futures Command, and I'm joined by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Dr. James Giordano, professor in the Departments of Neurology and Biochemistry, chief of the Neuroethics Studies Program, co-director of the Program in Science and Global Health Law and Policy, and chair of the sub-program in Military Medical Ethics of the Pellegrino Center for Clinical Bioethics at Georgetown University Medical Center. Dr. Giordano is the author of over 300 papers, 7 books, 21 book chapters, and 20 government white papers on brain science, national defense, and ethics. He will be talking with us today about the COVID-19 virus, its impact on national security, and the potential biosecurity futures that lie ahead. Finally, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. So thanks for joining us, Dr. G. Uh, You're the Chief of Neuroethics Studies Program at Georgetown University. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and about that program? Uh, sure. So my background is I was trained as a neuroscientist, sort of worked from the level of the synapse all the way up to social neuroscience, uh, did a postdoc in neuropathology and neurotoxicology, and also was trained in uh, philosophy of science and bioethics. So my background is pretty rich in that I've tried to always combine the sciences and the humanities. And coming from the European tradition and education, that's been an important component, not only my educational background, but also what I try to instill in the education of my students, my fellows, my, my postdocs, and my, my junior colleagues. Uh, my particular area in neuroethics really kind of grew, although I, people use the word a little bit too colloquially, organically. So certainly if you're studying brain science, and a lot of what I was looking in brain science is the interaction between pain and pleasure, decision-making, basis of cognition, and then really taking that from the research bench all the way to the proverbial bedside, and in my case, beyond the bedside to those things that are, are battlescape ready, there are a lot of ethical issues that go along with that. How do you do the science? What does the science mean? How do you define the good of the science? How do you control, guide, or govern potential misuse of science and technology in a variety of the different contexts and circumstances in which it may be applied? So again, and to reiterate, I think those two things for me at least went hand in hand as um, something vocational, as a, as a profession. I mean, doing science for what would be considered to be the good and understanding the good of that science and technology, particularly when in fact you're working in a variety of different milieu. In other words, you're working in the pure science, the clinical bedside. And then in my particular case, as you know, a lot of those things has extended into warfighter and intelligence operator performance and the examination studies of things that could be weaponized, bioweapons, chemo weapons, device weapons. So the ethical issues were really one in the same and inextricable from the scientific issues. 
So, Dr. G, we're here to talk specifically and focus on COVID-19. So can you give us um, sort of a rundown of this virus and the characteristics of this virus? Sure. And I think that for the listeners, it also becomes really important for them to understand that my background is I'm trained as a neuroscientist with with training in pathology and toxicology. And I also engage in neurochemistry and biochemistry. I'm not a virologist. I'm not a microbiologist, although the idea of understanding the way microbes, viruses, and bacteria can function in a variety of different circumstances, medically, as well as perhaps in ways that might be bioweaponized, is very important to my career and has been. Let me make something very straight and very clear for the listening audience. COVID-19, the SARS coronavirus type 2, is not identified as or intended to be a biological weapon by virtue of its delivery or its intended release. It appears strongly from all the evidence that I've seen, all the genomics, genetics, and phenotyping I've seen of the virus, to be a natural zoonotic entity that essentially began in an animal species, and in this case, we believe it's horseshoe bats, may have transferred to an intermediate species, which is a, a armored mammal called a pangolin, and at that point then made the zoonotic spillover a jump to humans. This is where things get a, a little debatable, however. It may be that this type of coronavirus, this, this particular type of coronavirus, and one of its pre-variant forms, may have also had exposure to human populations prior to its large-scale epidemic and, and pandemic spread, so that it may have had some genetic modifications that made it more viable in a human host. And at this point, they're pointing the finger at the possibility of patient zero, in other words, the proverbial first patient to be identified with the virus, as presenting signs and symptoms as early as fall, early autumn of 2019. Again, nothing out of the ordinary there, uh, the first case, what we call an N of one, a single case, doesn't necessarily mean that the trumpets and blaring horns have to sound in warning, but clearly it would have suggested that the pattern of distribution, both epidemiologically within the host country and then beyond that host country, based upon people's travel and communications, etc., might in fact have been a little more extensive and have occurred early on. We're familiar with the idea that the coronavirus really hit in about February or March, large scale, Europe, and then moving to the United States after its initially sort of epidemic spread in, in China. But it may very well be that uh, less potent forms of the virus or a lower viral load were actually available in human host populations as early as November, December, and perhaps internationally as early as January. So again, this speaks to the fact that this is an interesting virus in its evolution. It adapted from a mammalian species, a bat, to an intermediate species, to a human species, as many viruses will tend to do. I think what's important to make available and understandable to the listening audience is that there is the likelihood that this will continue to occur and occur with some increasing frequency. And the reason for that is something called ecological drift or ecological intrusion. Humans are spreading into a variety of different niches that heretofore were primarily simply occupied by animal species, and the extent of human-animal interaction is increasing. As well, environmental factors such as global warming and climate change may also precipitate the shift from animal interactions with humans to more direct interactions and may also cultivate the generation and perhaps evolution of a variety of different microbial species. There's a lot of moving parts that go along with that. But I think the other thing that becomes important to understand is that it, it is critical to develop insights and research to these particular microbial entities, various microbes and viruses. And therefore, it's not unusual 
for an institute of virology, such as that in Wuhan, to be studying coronaviruses. The coronaviruses are, in fact, intrinsic to China, as they are elsewhere in the world. We know that previous outbreaks of coronatype viruses like SARS and MERS certainly are destructive epidemiologically and disruptive to human populations. So there's nothing out of the ordinary that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was studying coronaviruses and perhaps was studying a variant of this virus. That, again, does not point in any way to the fact that this was a weaponized agent. It is a naturally occurring virus. However, I think what needs to be understood is that when working with these types of viruses that may have potential epidemic spread and or pandemic capability, the level of biohazard risk and threat security should be very, very high in whatever institution is studying them. And at this point, as you know, as of today, I mean, literally today, Tuesday, 14th of April, 2020, there is some suggestion that uh, the, the relative security at the Wuhan Institute of Virology was only at a biological research laboratory level two, rather than a higher level, is not necessarily suggestive of ineptitude or laxity, but rather that perhaps the epidemic proportionality or, or pandemic potential of this virus was not well appreciated. And as a consequence, that may have led to accidental exposure or accidental transport of the virus to either intermediate animal populations or to uh, interact with the human host population that may have made it somewhat more virulent. No finger pointing going on here at all. But at each step, I think it becomes important to gather some lessons learned. And the lesson learned here is when dealing with these types of highly mutable viruses that are adaptable, that have shown to have epidemic capability in the past and the potential for pandemic spread, biohazard assessment, biohazard recognition acknowledgement, and biohazard biosecurity safety and surety become paramount, irrespective of wherever these studies are conducted worldwide. That said, the coronavirus, as everyone knows at this point, is one of a family of viruses from coronaviridae. It is a respiratory virus. It's called a coronavirus because the actual core that looks like a sphere is surrounded by a crown or, or a ring of spikes. These protrusions are called the coronae. They have on their ends little bits of glycoprotein that need to interact with host proteins. And in this case, these are host proteins of respiratory enzymes. And these particular respiratory enzymes are viable in mammal species. And certainly we now know in human species. What the virus requires is a host cell. Viruses are not alive. They're not living entities. They are pure biological information. They're either DNA or RNA, which then manufactures a structure for its own transport and propagation. The virus interacts with a living host cell. It injects the viral material, its nuclear material, DNA or RNA, and in this case, it's recombinant RNA, ribonucleic acid, into the host cell and essentially transforms that host cell into colloquially, a virus factory. In so doing, it actually changes not only the metabolism of the cell, but the function of the cell and the structure of the cell. What that then does is that renders that cell relatively inert or incapable of its original biological function. And since we're talking about cells of the respiratory tract, upper, middle, and lower respiratory tract, those are all the things our respiratory cells do. These cells are what we call ciliated. They have tiny filaments on top, and those filaments help to trap material and then make them available for our immune system. And those cells are also important for the production of mucus and the relative competency of the pulmonary tree, literally from the throat all the way deep into the lungs. 
if those cells are compromised or destroyed by the virus, number one, or number two, are then secondarily destroyed by immune responses against those cells that are virus-producing cells, and or there is collateral damage, literally collateral damage, where the immune system now begins to be less specific and not only attacks those cells that are virally producing, but also neighboring cells, well, now you see a lot of tissue damage. And that's, in fact, what happens in the coronavirus. As the virus moves into the deeper respiratory tract, into the deep branches of the lungs, into what's called the, the, the pulmonary arbor, what we find is that initially there's viral destruction, which can then lead to viral pneumonia. And then there's a secondary immunological response. The secondary immunological response is the immune system is essentially mounting a destructive assault on any and all cells it may recognize to be potentially viral. One thing may happen in between. Remember that we said that those, those pulmonary cells, the cells of the respiratory tract, do a pretty good job in using their epithelia, their cilia, the ciliated epithelial types, these little filaments on top of their, their cell layer, to trap foreign bodies and perhaps even bacteria. And as the function of those ciliated cells decreases and as the immune system reacts more towards the virus, it opens up an opportunistic window for secondary bacterial infection. Some of those bacteria may already be present in our respiratory tract. We encounter them conspicuously and copiously throughout the day. And some of them are those that are then literally opportunistic because the lack of the immune system simply recognizes now an and bacterial microbiological infection can then occur. So you then have the possibility for a secondary or opportunistic bacterial infection. And when we're putting all of these things together, unless the immune system is regulating the the extent and specificity of the immune assault on virally infected cells and helping to suppress the bacterial overgrowth, what can very easily happen is an immunological overreaction where the immune system produces a whole host of inflammatory mediators to the extent that it overwhelms the bodily system. This is called the cytokine storm. Cytokines are chemicals that are produced by immune cells that induce an inflammatory response, not only in local tissue, but systemically. And here we're seeing loss of pulmonary function due to the loss of pulmonary function and proliferant inflammation throughout the body. We also see a change in kidney function, change in liver function. The change in kidney function leads to an increased accumulation of toxins in the body, which can then have a negative effect on the brain, compromising brain function further to then compromise physiology. And you then have the induction of acute respiratory distress syndrome, which can then lead to profound multiple organ system failure. So so this is what we see as we call the spectrum, a constellation of potential features of COVID-19. Now, some interesting statistics that I, I think are important. And again, these are statistics as of today, 14th of April, 2020. Characteristically, when an individual is exposed to the virus, they will begin to present with symptoms somewhere between two and 11 days after the exposure. Average is about five days. Now, again, these signs and symptoms can pretty much run the gamut or the spectrum of things that are very, very mild, upper respiratory type infection, signs and symptoms, stuffy nose, mild sore throat, itchy, watery eyes, to more middle respiratory tract symptoms, sore throat, dry cough, fever, to those more severe symptoms, respiratory distress, labored breathing, viral pneumonia, spiking fevers, distress, and then clearly progressing. So then we're becoming more severe in the possibility of acute respiratory distress syndrome. 
and organ failure. Clearly, by day five or day 10, after the patient has presented symptoms, usually one of two things will happen. The signs and symptoms will begin to resolve because the immunological response is appropriate, fitting into the extent and scope necessary to then control the infection, or things will start to escalate and the patient's signs and symptoms may become more severe. Day 10 after the presentation of symptoms is critical. By day 10, we would expect that there would be a lessening of signs and symptoms, and if these do not occur, there's an increased probability for the induction of cytokine storm, acute respiratory distress, and the possibility of sequential organ system failure. This is characteristically those patients who then require mechanical ventilation and intensive care support. So what we know is that about 80 to 85 percent of these patients who become infected will present with mild to moderate symptoms. Some so mild they may not even realize that they have anything wrong with them at all. Stuffy nose, watery eyes, or very vague symptoms altogether. Headache, loss of smell, loss of taste, and then it dissipates. These individuals may in fact be carriers. They may still have a viral titer for as long as 20, 30 days after the initial infection. For the majority of patients, they will present with mild symptoms, and the mild symptoms will peak somewhere, again, between 2 and 11 days after initial infection. Those mild symptoms will be cough, fever, sweats, malaise, flu-like symptoms. About 14% to 15% of the patients who are infected develop more severe symptoms. In this case, viral pneumonia, difficulty breathing, spiked fevers, malaise, uh, clearly, these are individuals who may require oxygenation support, but not forced ventilation. And then about 3 to 5% of infected patients will progress to criticality, where now you're seeing acute respiratory distress syndrome, compound pneumonia, multiple organ system involvement, if not failure. These individuals require intensive care. Now, of that, certain individuals tend to be more vulnerable for moderate to severe forms of the disease, and these are individuals who have existing pulmonary and respiratory conditions, individuals who have cardiac conditions, renal conditions, kidney conditions, liver conditions, diabetes, autoimmune dysfunction, or hyperimmune conditions, and individuals who are otherwise somewhat frail and compromised. So here we're looking at those patients who are in what we'll call age-related decline after the age of about 70, 75. But of course, age is not the actual discriminating factor here, the deciding factor. But the discrimination then needs to be how healthy is this individual and how robust. You may have an 80-year-old who is the absolute picture of health who's a strong, functional individual, and you may have a 50-year-old who is not. So age is not the discriminating or deciding factor per se, but rather what is the individual's, quote, pre-morbid state, or do they have pre-existing conditions, and just how severely the disease is manifesting in them. So Dr. G, changing lanes just a little bit, you know, we've had you on before to talk about brain warfare uh, or the future of brain warfare. And you talked before about neurological weapons being largely bugs and drugs. Does COVID-19, you know, based on your expertise, does that have anything to do with the human brain? What kind of impact are we looking at? That's really a two-part question. So uh, again, let me be very explicit. There's nothing to indicate that COVID-19 was an intentionally developed or released biological weapon. Nothing that I've seen. However, again, lessons learned for biosecurity preparation response and biohazard protection and threat identification. The question of whether or not COVID has anything to do with the brain sort of opens up a, a potential 
I'm not going to say can of worms, but I think it opens up some potentials for the trajectories of what could happen with any one of these more profound diseases. One of the things we've come to recognize with the coronaviruses is they can compromise, obviously, pulmonary function, cardiac function, and renal function. And if you compromise renal function, it is possible that you can build up toxic metabolites in blood that can negatively affect the brain. Also, it is suspected that in some individuals, there may be a susceptibility to actually having a viral infection and or virally related inflammation in the brain itself. We now know that the brain does have what's called a patent lymphatic system. We thought for a long time that the brain was an immunologically distinct organ. It was different than the way the body worked, its immunological responses and its access pathways for immune response. But now we recognize that there are lymphatics in certain parts of the brain. And we also understand that these coronaviruses in some individuals may have direct penetrance from the bloodstream into brain tissue. So one of the things that we're appreciating is that in some patients, they will develop a central nervous system type syndrome as a, a postrome, as an after effect. A number of things can lead into that. We know that these coronaviruses are capable of producing something called necrotizing encephalitis, where now the brain becomes inflamed as a consequence of either whole body inflammation or perhaps a direct effect of the immune system on the brain in response to the virus. And that inflammation causes changes in the brain tissue that will actually kill off areas of brain tissue and thereby disrupt some of its connectivities and in consequence lead to changes in brain function on a variety of levels from the very, very mild and almost indistinguishable to the more profound where individuals are having problems with cognition, executive function, behavior, motor control. The other issue is that we're not quite sure what the latent effects of this coronavirus might be as regards to brain structure and function. And there have been some concerns that the direct penetrance of the virus into the brain spaces, into the brain compartment, may then have latent effects, not necessarily that it's a full-blown viral infection of the brain, but latent inflammatory effects or immunological effects. And again, the primary concern there is individuals who may already have neurological compromise, neurodegenerative diseases, age-related neurological cognitive decline, etc. And another factor that, of course, is of concern is what are the bodily effects of the viral infection on the brain? We had mentioned one earlier, and that's compromised kidney function. Kidneys clear out toxic metabolites that can affect the brain, the main one being urea. But we also know that changes in cardiac function, changes in respiratory function can lead to change in brain function. And in some individuals, this can then predispose them towards inflammation in the brain, the possibility for a stroke, and in some cases, uh, longer term neurological and neurocognitive signs and features that may be either somewhat progressive or, or may be static. But again, it's too early to really tell. In my line of work, um, looking at clinical neuroscience and neuropathology, I think it becomes important to understand what those effects are and to be mindful of them and have directed research programs that then look at what may be the intermediate and longer term effects of those individuals who are not only most profoundly affected by the virus, in other words, those who are in critical care with full-blown ARDS and cytokine storm, but perhaps those individuals who had lesser forms of the virus and are there particular patterns where their brain function is more or less involved and what those patterns then reveal about underlying predispositions and susceptibilities. Thank you for that. That, that really illustrates 
what what it does uh, to the brain and, and potential consequences. Really, those second and third order effects we don't always think about. You've made quite clear, you know, that COVID nineteen is not a bioweapon. But in the future, when we think about this, if a state or, or even a non-state actor were to try and weaponize a virus like COVID-19, what would that look like? Well, I certainly think it's possible. You know, I've, I've, I do a lot of work with my, my colleague at, at National Defense University, Dr. Diane Deulis. Uh, she is a senior fellow and research director for the program in weapons of mass destruction there at NDU. And of course, uh, I'm also blessed to have a wonderful collaboration of a senior scholar who works with me, Mr. Joseph DeFranco, who also works in the interface between brain science and microbiology. So the idea of how microbiological organisms and or vectors might have some effect on the central and peripheral nervous system fall squarely in our wheelhouse. But one of the things that keeps coming up over and again, irrespective of whether there's a neurological function or there's a non-neurological target, is the increasing ease at which organisms might be modifiable through the use of currently available and developing gene editing techniques. So the one that probably most frequently comes to mind is CRISPR-Cas9 or CRISPR with its related Cas enzymatic systems. And again, not taken alone, but certainly taken together with other pre-existing gene modifying and gene editing techniques, the facility that the CRISPR method and tools lend is relative ease. I mean, the, the facility of easy access to the material relative ease in terms of gene editing, someone who has even fundamental or basic microbiological and or genetic skills, and the possibility to do this in a variety of circumstances and situations that do not necessarily require a high level of laboratory sophistication. So here, the idea of a fairly sophisticated biohacker who understands how to get hold of the material and or how to then utilize one or more of these gene editing kits could in fact engage a variety of microbes and modify them. Now, directional modification of microbial organisms or directional modification of, of viruses might be difficult because that requires control, specificity. But if I were an actor or if I were working for a nation state and I really didn't care what I created, as long as I created something that might be disruptive, well, then what happens there is you're stacking the deck. So what we're trying to use CRISPR for and these other gene editing tools and techniques is, again, directed or intentional modification towards end products of organisms that we understand what they're going to be, what they're going to do, and we're trying to modify them in selective ways towards particular trajectories of structure and function. But again, and to repeat myself, but to drive the point home in so doing, if what I'm really trying to do is to just create an organism that be, would be more infectious, transmissible, pathogenic, I really necessarily wouldn't care what it is that I created, only that I created something that had the necessary characteristics that I was then looking to implement. So this has been a worry for us, and certainly working with my colleague, Dr. Deulis, with my colleague, Dr. Dan Gerstein of the RAND Corporation, one of the things that we're suggesting and, and the, the drum that we're proverbially beating is that these type of gene editing techniques, not only taken alone, but in concert with other viable techniques and tools of the bio and life sciences, are something of a game changer when it comes to the viability or possibility of developing 
novel, in other words, taking existing biological organisms and modifying them, or new biological organisms that may have pathological features that could be leveraged as agents of disruption and or destruction. In other words, weaponizing those things. So, you know, as technology marches forward, and ardently so, and as its availability becomes ever more widespread, I'm not going to say ubiquitous, but certainly ever more widespread, then the facility, the relative ease of acquiring those tools, either off the shelf or through channels, and using those tools to develop agents that may have a disruptive effect, clearly increases, which is why the level of biosurveillance, biosecurity, and biohazard threat responsivity and preparedness needs to increase proportionally. So Dr. G, you recently wrote a blog post on the Med Scientist Laboratory with Vikram Venkatram as part of our Contagion series. Uh, what brought you to write that piece? And can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, I've been very fortunate to work with Mr. Venkatram for a couple of years. He's uh, an undergraduate scholar who's working at the intersection between our science and technology and society program and my particular program, both in neurology, biochemistry, and the specific program in brain science and global uh, global health law and policy. He's, he's a really bright guy and he's a very creative guy and a very forward thinking guy. I think mean, he's going to be a real asset to the community. Um, what, what Mr. Venkatram is really interested in is how existing science can be harnessed, in some cases usurped, in those ways that might then be problematic for global biosecurity. Again, to reiterate, COVID-19 is not a bioweapon. But the question then becomes, what can we learn from the patterns of biosecurity and biohazard preparedness response and mitigation that would be useful to then apply to future elements of biosecurity and biohazard threat response, whether those biosecurity threats, risks, and burdens are naturally occurring, are naturally occurring that are then in some way engaged and utilized by state or non-state actors, or are purely synthetic. So in the work that we wrote uh, for Mad Scientist, we were very concerned in what the level of preparedness was and how preparedness then speaks to immediacy and extent of response and how immediacy and response will then speak into future preparedness with regard to having mechanisms and infrastructures in place that would essentially assume something of a four-thrust approach to be able to assess and surveil the possibility of existing burdens, risks, and threats quantifying those appropriately, and then from that qualification and quantification, rapidly moving to mitigate if, in fact, the quad is already out of the proverbial sack and or to prevent, in those cases possible, so as to suppress the possibility of just this type of thing, whether this type of thing represents a naturally occurring microbe or some other type of naturally occurring biological organism that then poses a threat to public health and national security, or something that is actually intentionally developed and released or developed anew so as to then be weaponized. So that was the, the focus of, of our work. So you alluded to this throughout a few of your answers, that uh, there are many lessons to be learned from this pandemic, even though it was not a weaponized bioagent. What does all this mean for biodefense in the future? That's a very good question. And I, I want to predicate my, my, my answer on saying I'm not finger pointing, I'm not being partisan. Um, what we're trying to do is to take a, a cold, hard look at the structures and functions within the various levels of government that would then stabilize and to some extent sustain, if not guarantee, at least as best possible, national security, public safety, and public health. In many ways, 
we were caught with our pants down on this one. And let me explain what I mean by that. For a long time, uh, for years, there has been very explicit talk of biosecurity gaps and or inadequacies at a number of levels within the various chains of structure and function across levels of government. And that this represented, if not an Achilles heel, certainly a point of entry for vulnerability to other Achilles heels. So for example, the national economy, military readiness, uh, public health care and healthcare provision and its administration, those may be the true Achilles heel, but certainly you need to sort of vector your way in to be able to get past Achilles sandal to get to the heel, so to speak. Our group, working in concert with a number of other groups, both domestically and internationally, recognize that there is a growing risk and growing threat of biosecurity implications that should be addressed. Again, whether these are radical leveling techniques and technologies, again, taking existing things and modifying them in such a, in such a way as to make them more risky and or threatening as potential hazards to public safety, public health, and national security, or things that are developed anew, inclusive of those things that may occur anew in nature, such as a naturally occurring agent that then rapidly reaches epidemic and pandemic proportion. So in reality, what we were suggesting is that the infrastructure and its functions of preparedness, response, and prevention need to be readdressed, revisited, and in some cases revised to remain a pace with the potential level of risk and threat that we viewed as a clear, present, and mounting issue. Preparedness entails surveillance on a number of different levels. Preparedness also entails not only surveilling what is, quote, out there, if you will, on the potential global stage and all its ecologies, inclusive of what's happening on state and non-state actor levels, as well as what's occurring within natural ecologies caused by a variety of things, environmental shift, human intrusion to environments, uh, after and conjoint effects of, of combat, et cetera, all of these things need to be figured into that calculus. But surveillance also in terms of turning the lens around to then be a mirror. What are the infrastructures and infrafunctions that we have, whoever we may be, whether it's the United States or any nation or any group, in terms of being ready for the possibility for those most probable identified risks and threats? Our group, again, working with others, has posed three potential vistas of horizons of occurrence. The most near term occurs from five years prior to five years in the future, and this is what we consider to be the vista, the horizon of probability. These are things that are out there, seem to have some trajectory and momentum, and it's very probable that they'll be realized, and therefore they represent certainly a clear and very possibly present issue, question, and or threat. If you then go to 6 to 15 years in the future, this then becomes the vista of possibility. Based upon certain probabilities then becoming realized, this then sets the stage, if you will, the platform for those things that may become possible based upon those probable occurrences. This then takes us to about 30 years in the future. At that point, you then interface with the vista or the horizon of potentiality. What potential things could occur at that point, given the occurrence of those things possible from those things that are most probabilistically inferential to occur in the near future? So there are two ways we could look at this. 
One is to look from, quote, now until then, from the probable through the possible to the potential. Or one could plan, for example, that these are the things we potentially seek to realize and then work backwards to then ask and engage what needs to be done so as to realize that potential. The former case, going from now until then, is what we call inductive progress. The latter case, going from then backwards and then determining what we have to do, is deductive processing. And so what we're very concerned about is both. What do we have in place at present and in the near future with regard to biosecurity infrastructures and functions? And are those things adequate and or sufficient to be able to, quote, get the job done in light of not only the potential for natural burdens, risks, and threats, but those that may be man-made, man-created, man-intended, and or man-developed and released. But then also, what are the trajectories of what is possible and or potential given the evolution in science and technology and its potential uses on the global stage that might necessitate fortification of infrastructures and infrafunctions with regard to biosecurity to ensure a more adequate and sustainable public health, public safety, and national security. So the previous question focused on looking inward at ourselves, but let's look outward. What, what implications could there be for our adversaries and their bio programs? Well, there are a number of them. I mean, I think the, the implications and the instances of capability are pretty much identical worldwide. One of the things I think that the COVID crisis, and as some would begin to consider it now the COVID catastrophe, illustrates is where there are gaps, weaknesses, inadequacies, and or frank failures in nations, groups, and perhaps international cooperatives, collaboratives, and or systems of biosecurity awareness, preparedness, and response. The proverbial chinks, gaps in the armor, if you will, are becoming ever more evident. And the world is certainly watching. The question is, will these then be calls to action to then be shored up in the future? And will we in fact engage the necessary processes of a gap identification, gap analyses, and then ultimately gap closure, compensation, and then fortification in the future? Or will we sort of just exhale after this is all over, recognize, yeah, this may entail some kind of a new normal and go back to, quote, business as usual, which would be, I think, disastrous because we are evidencing a number of different gaps on a variety of different levels from the local to the global. And it's also speaking strongly to the capability of cooperation, collaboration, and what that means for the sort of collective of human health integrity and even just so the, the global economy. So aside from any sort of nationalistic preferences, what this is suggesting is there are times and indeed we are all in this together, but one cannot simply look at the world through the Pollyanna lens. One has to then speculate, well, what if we weren't all in this together? Could these very same vulnerabilities, weaknesses, and gaps in infrastructure and infrafunction and extra functions in biosecurity systems and hierarchies then be exploited to the advantage of one group versus another? And the answer to that question is clearly yes. The follow along with that is, well, to what extent might that need to be done? Clearly, if this is then leveraged in the kinetic space, well, now you're really intruding into biological toxins and weapons and chemical weapons conventions, existing declarations such as Helsinki and conduct of what would be various 
actions on the part of nation state or actors that could then be seen as bellicose. In other words, you've, you've crossed the threshold, that's an act of war. But could these things also be leveraged and engaged non-kinetically in a sub-bellicose way whereby these capabilities would then impart plus some advantages to the executor and zero some profound disadvantages to the recipient in ways that would not be declarable as an act of war, exist below the bellicose threshold, and therefore create problems with regard to response. How do you respond to non-kinetic threats and or insults and assaults? Do you do that non-kinetically? Do you have to demonstrate that? What if you respond kinetically? Is your kinetic response justified? So on a number of levels, I mean, ranging from the frankly political all the way down to the socioeconomic and perhaps even the ethical legal in terms of international law, the combination of non-kinetic engagements prompting a kinetic response creates a lot of problems for that group that kinetically responds. So I think on the, the new, if you will, worldscape, I'm not going to say battlescape, but on the new worldscape of potential multinational engagement, appreciating that science and technology can be employed and leverage to gain great purchase non-kinetically affords certain advantages to the, if I will, the aggressor or the initiator of these non-kinetic activities and can be very disadvantageous and zero sum for the recipient. So in some ways, as I mentioned earlier, we see these developments in science and technology and the potential to then harness the biosciences, chemosciences, even data sciences in these ways as really being a force multiplier and game changer for what the battlescape or engagement space of the 21st century will become in its, in its evolving iteration. Thank you, Dr. G. I mean, I think that really helps us understand better the scope of both COVID-19 and, and those implications it has not only for us, but you know, adversaries that we're going to have to look at in the future operational environment. I'd, I'd, um, like, to add, I'd like to add one more thing. I don't mean to interrupt. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, again, talking about adversaries, let, let's back that up one. Let's not consider adversaries, but now let's take a look at international competitors because the international milieu is based upon both competition and cooperation on a variety of different levels. These produce positive tensions. And when those positive tensions escalate, then this can become somewhat more problematic, if not conflictive. But I think one of the things that becomes very important for the listeners to understand is that we're not really existing in a uniform environment of uh, ethical universality. That's a mouthful. Let me explain what I mean. Different cultures have different histories, different philosophies, different needs, different values, and as a consequence, different ethics. Ethics is always about the effort or about the enterprise or about the environment in which it's going to be used. And what we understand is that particularly today in the 21st century, given the new sort of what my colleague Dr. Roland Benedict refers to as global shift, in that now it's not just a question of saying the West proverbially, and the rest, but rather what you're seeing is the development of hegemonies in key spaces, economically, socially, militarily, politically, of a number of different nations and regions. What we must appreciate is those nations, regions, cultures, histories, needs, values, philosophies, and ethics. And in some cases, differing philosophies and differing ethics 
create very, very different platforms, very different runways, and may also accommodate, if not facilitate, different timetables of scientific and technological research, development, and translation into use. In other words, what we may find to be ethically problematic, somewhere else might not. And the question then becomes, well, how do we deal with that? Is it ethically appropriate to point a finger at someone else and say, you shall not do this, when in fact, this represents their longstanding norm or mores, who are we then to tell them what to do? Indeed, if this entails some interaction of, let's say, my group with your group and our ethics differ, well, then clearly what that necessitates is at least some discourse, if not a true dialogue, in other words, a, a discussion, a rational account into the thing of what things we find to be ethically acceptable, what things we find to be not ethically acceptable, and how can we reach some level of equilibrium as where to agree and disagree so as to then create at least some form of mutually beneficial progress. But the more players you put in that mix, and the higher the stakes become with regard to the outcomes of such progress, now, what tends to happen is those discussions become a little more tense. They become a little more forced, and they become a little more, and perhaps appropriately, egoistic. In other words, this is very good for me and mine. Just because it's not very good for you and yours, it may simply be that that particular level of inequality or inequity you find problematic. So what this then necessitates is the need to develop ethical legal approaches that are far more appreciative of developing balances of power and capabilities of hegemony. And those types of discussions, I think, are going to see the need for a more cosmopolitan palette of ethics that can be used in more specific contexts of international and multinational engagement with, I think, some appreciation for the fact that there may be certain common values and certain common vistas that must be appreciated and perhaps decided upon. And there are other areas that will remain distinct and perhaps difficult to reconcile. And those are going to be sort of the workspaces of the future. Uh, it's not going to be an easy task. And I think that it is going to be both a challenge and an opportunity. Absolutely, sir. And kind of changing tracks just a little bit, you know, what we're talking about is the future operational environment, looking out in this space. And some of the people you're talking to really are future scientists. They're in high school and middle school, maybe even elementary school right now. You've had such extensive work uh, with the DOD, but also um, in this space. What, what advice would you give them? Why would they want to work in this field, but also potentially with the military or the government? Because the future is in their hands. And please do not drop it. I think that what we're seeing is, again, a, a new norm. This happens. There are these sort of evolutions that occur in the socio-political frameworks. I mean, we've seen them throughout the 20th century and the 19th century, but I think what's blossoming as we go from the 20th century, which is the century of science, if you will, and technology, into then using that science and technology across a range of socio-political, cultural, and environmental scenarios, is that the need for that multinational, international discourse will increase significantly. And the reason for that is that it's been enabled and capabilized by technology. Things now happen in real time. Things happen very, very quickly. Level of communication, miscommunication, and even non-communication are occurring at a pace and at a scope that dictates 
a very different level of involvement, awareness, insight, and reasoned responsivity. So, you know, as, as you guys know, uh, every summer for the past 15 years, we've been running high school programs for those students who want to get involved in my particular areas, the life sciences and how the life sciences and biomedical sciences can then be applied more broadly, not only in terms of things such as medicine and clinical care, but throughout a variety of different domains and dimensions of society, inclusive of national security, intelligence, and defense, and what that means for global interactions with this new global shift. And I think that increasingly there are going to be challenges because of the rapidity and the ease of transfer of information, uh, viability of human movement, the relative fluidity of what represents the national versus the international versus the virtual. And I think what that will do is conjoin uh, a lot of the areas of the science and technology to the functions of the socio-cultural, political, and military in ways that heretofore were not even possible. So I think that this is a very exciting time, a very challenging time, and it's very interesting. But, you know, as, as our Chinese colleagues like to say as both blessing and curse, may you live in interesting times. And I think that the way to succeed in living in interesting times is to remain interested to gain insight and to remain engaged. And my hope to our younger listeners on this podcast is that uh, they accept both that challenge and rise to its opportunity. Sir, we're going to shift now to the part of our show where we do our rapid fire, or our quick fire questions, um, but feel free to answer them at any speed you like. Okay. Um, the, the first question is, what's a technology or trend that keeps a man like yourself up at night? Uh, there are two. I think that uh, the cyber sciences and the ubiquity of information, data transfer, acquisition, storage, and use creates a number of very rapidly evolving potential benefits, burdens, and risks. And I think that it'd be very, very difficult to remain at pace with that. Uh, clearly, the use of big data, the cyber sciences, artificial intelligence and decision networks is, uh, again, as my colleague Diane DeUlis and I have, have put out in print, it's a force multiplier to almost any field that it's applied. And we certainly see its implications strongly in and across the life sciences, but also the social sciences. And I think the fusion of data sciences and nanosciences and nanoengineering, being able to do things at a very, very small scale where some of the physical properties that are inherent to the mechanical scale, in other words, mechanical operations, may not necessarily fully obtain. So the thing that kind of keeps me up at night is not necessarily one science or technology, but what my colleague Ashok Vishasta and, and others have referred to as advanced integrative scientific convergence. In other words, this new soup or this new stew of science is coming together in a de-siloed way that creates possibilities and potentials that are in many ways mind-blowing. Okay, and so this next question comes with a small qualifier as this is a public podcast. So what's something about you most people might not know? <laughs> it's a public broadcast. All right, so I'll, I'll tell you a couple of things. Um, I play jazz and blues piano and did that for a while as a means of making an income. Uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far away, I was a lifeguard and a bouncer in a bar in the Jersey Shore. Uh, and I'm also a certified card-carrying horseshoer. So I, I went to farrier school and I can shoe horses. Um, and, uh, you know, the stuff that people probably already know about me is I fly airplanes and 
race motorcycles and stuff. But those other things probably are not well known. Dr. James Giordano, a Renaissance man and scientist. Well, I'm certainly old enough to be a Renaissance man. <laughs> I, I, I knew Da Vinci well. You know? that, was, that, was, that was actually a great answer. So the final question, and this is actually my favorite question because it gives us kind of a cool insight into our guests. What's your favorite movie? All right. So I'll answer it two ways. So I have to always start with this one because this is actually the thing that got me into doing what I was doing. Uh, seriously. I went to see the movie Fantastic Voyage with my father when I was six years old. And yeah, this was 1965, 1966. And you can still rent it on, on you know, the available networks online. And this was the movie with Stephen Boyd and Arthur Kennedy and Raquel Welch. It was a great movie. But if you think about it, this was 1966. And so the idea of this movie is here's this international diplomat who has medical secrets of vital national security who's looking to defect. And then his assassination attempt on his life, and he develops a blood clot in his brain that is inoperable. So they contact the military to then use the latest and greatest military technology for miniaturizing equipment with the idea of miniaturizing a small submarine that is staffed by scientists who can be injected into this guy's body, travel to his brain, and use a miniaturized new weapon at that time, a laser beam, I feel like Dr. Evil, a laser beam, to destroy this blood clot. And the movie occurred in, quote, real time. They could only be miniaturized for an hour, so the movie ran a little bit longer than an hour. But it was still uh, on the big screen. I thought this was the greatest thing that I'd ever seen. And my dad was uh, a nautical engineer. He was a submarine designer. And of course, he was into it too. And I remember telling my dad when we walked out of the theater, that's what I want to do. And I, I remember like it was yesterday, he, he chuckled and he was like, what do you want to do? I said, well, you know, I, I want to do brain stuff and I want to use all that like high tech stuff. And, you know, he kind of patted me on the head and said, all right, let's go for ice cream. And so here it is, uh, 50, what, six years later, 57 years later. And, you know, my dad has passed, but hey, dad, thanks for taking me to the movie. It sort of really set me up for the rest of my life. So I have to say, in terms of most influential movie, that old 1966 movie, Fantastic Voyage, was, was really where it's at. But in terms of my favorite movie, Wings of Desire. Um, it's, it's a great movie. The, uh, the original title in, in German was Angels Over Berlin, or Heaven Over Berlin. And it, it's a wonderful movie about two guardian angels uh, in sort of present-day Berlin. And it was, it was made back in the 1980s. It's classic. And, and one of the, the interesting things that happens is that one of the angels falls in love with a human. Uh, and interestingly, she's a trapeze artist. And he forgoes his uh, angelity. He forgoes his, his angelness to become human and suffer the slings and arrows that go along with that. And it, it's a poignant movie. It, it's a Wim Wenders movie. And it, it's really well done, and it, it stars the actor Bruno Gantz, who just recently passed away, and Peter Falk of Columbo fame. It's a great movie. But in, in retrospect, and I think even in prospection, the movie in a lot of ways is sort of like a, a new version of Faust. I mean, like, what would you trade for the things you love? And I don't mean to be um, sort of pedantic, I like the movie. It was a great movie, and I certainly recommend it. But I think it's also an interesting morality play that we can ask writ large in the very same format that we're having this, this discussion. What will we trade for the things that we love? What are we willing to become? And in doing that, is that making us more human, or are we giving certain things up? And I, 
again, it was a wonderful movie, and I think the take-home message is certainly not a new one, but one that I'd like to leave your listeners with. Uh, it's the old Faustian bargain, if you will. What will we become, and what are we willing to trade to do that? See, that's why that's my favorite question. No other, no other question we ask gives that kind of insight uh, into the minds and the humanity of our guests. So thank you for that, sir. Uh, thanks for the question. Before we, before we let you go, is there anything else we didn't cover that you'd like to get out to our listeners? No, I mean, I think it was, it was a, a, a really nice discussion. Uh, again, the one thing that I, I would like to communicate is that this, the, the premise of this is the COVID crisis. This will resolve, uh, not without human cost on a variety of levels, and hopefully this crisis has spared as many of the listeners as conceivably possible of the profundity of those costs. But I think as with so many things, there's an old expression that says there are no good experiences or bad experiences, only the experience and knowledge one gets from good things or bad things. And my hope is that we can take away a lot of good things from this to establish a new normal that's far more collaborative, cooperative, far more realistic, rational, and prepared and a lot more reasonable in its response. So those are my take-home thoughts. Well, sir, thank you so much for that. This has been uh, a great discussion and really a, a very comprehensive look at uh, this, this pandemic scenario that we're all living through. So I want to thank you for coming on the show and thank you for the discussion, sir. Uh, thanks so much for your interest in my work. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. James Giordano of the Georgetown University Medical Center. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter, at REMADSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil.